Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. I'm back. Oh my God, we're back again. I have heard that some of you thought I was dead or seriously injured, but fear not. I am here and I am fine. Well, I'm mostly fine. As fine as I can be considering everything that is going on in the world, Jesus fucking Christ. If you have a uterus, find a fucking protest. This is not something that I thought I would see in my lifetime, but you know what? I didn't think I would see a pandemic either. I don't know what the fuck is happening. I just don't know. I have spent this six-week hiatus from Follow the Woo trying to get my brain and body in a space that can handle all of the new woo that's coming in like an avalanche, plus all of the political stuff that's going on. It's just a lot. I also went on my honeymoon, which was in Portugal. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. It's absolutely beautiful, and I'm so grateful that we were given that gift. Honestly, in a lot of ways, it made my wife and I want to live outside of the U.S. because of all the fuckery that is happening here right now. Anyway, thank you for patiently waiting for the woo to return. It warms my heart to know that I have regular listeners who not only love the content that I put out, but also have the compassion to care about my well-being and check in on me. It's cute. Actually, it's more than cute. I cried my eyes out the other day. We were on an airplane coming home from Seattle, and we're watching this show called, I think it's just called Julia Child on HBO. It's a new show, and it's so heartwarming. We watched the final episode and I was crying like crocodile tears on the airplane because it was so awesome to see people being kind to each other on screen. And I realized that it wasn't necessarily the kindness that got me to cry. It was the fact that I just don't see it that often. And I just thought, what a contrast to see this woman who was spectacular, at least the way she's written in the HBO special, at being kind to other people and living a joyful life. I'm going off on a tangent here because I haven't talked to you guys in a while, so I'm allowed. I just want to say that whoever needs to hear this, myself included, if you feel like you need to talk shit about somebody to somebody, I am asking you to at least consider not doing that today. And if you know me and you're in my life and you hear me doing that shit, I am asking you to kick me in my ass and say, stop doing that. I do not understand when kindness became so uncool, but I'm not here for it. I am not here for it. I want to be more like Julia Child or more like the Julia Child that the HBO writers had in their minds because that is beautiful and we desperately need it right now. Michael, my guest today, one thing we talk about is those who are the hardest to love are the ones who need it the most. And I know we throw that shit around because it's like a cliche thing, but we need to remember it. We really do. When the fuck 
did we decide it was okay to be that way to each other? I just cannot even fathom the way that we treat each other. And it's because we don't know how to treat ourselves either. So be fucking nice to yourself. Be fucking nice to people around you. Let's just fucking try. All right. I'm sorry. I'm so worked up about everything that's going on right now. You know, I was always taught that the way to make true friends is to be vulnerable. You share a little vulnerability first, not too much. You don't want to overshare, but just enough to create space for the other person to feel comfortable enough to do the same. And over time, each friend gets a little deeper with the vulnerability until you both feel like you've got a solid friendship. This process takes time. It's basically a long game of, do you trust me to catch you? But it's worth it. In fact, it might be one of the most worthwhile processes we go through as humans. Because the outcome is that you get to feel like you can be radically yourself with someone else. And they get to feel that with you. It's like you create a safe container with each other. I'm going to get vulnerable with you. I try to always do that. I like to think of you all, the listeners, as kind of like a collective spirit being. When I speak into my microphone, I'm talking to you, my potential singular friend. So I've been struggling with my mental health and it's become pretty unmanageable over the past year or so because of the pandemic and like opening up after the pandemic. And I recently started taking medication for my mental health. I want you to know that I will never discourage you from doing that for yourself too, if that's what you need and if that's what works for you. My guest today, Michael Hemet, and I are going to talk a lot about plant medicine and alternative woo healing therapies. And there are so many groups in these areas that completely deny the scientific relevance of modern medicine. Early on in my woo journey in this lifetime, I was anti-medication. I thought that you could just meditate your way out of anything. And I do think that in very, very, very rare circumstances, you know, people can do that without the help of modern medicine and modalities. But the operative phrase there is very rare circumstances. I'm not saying we don't have problems with medication abuse. I know this is a complicated topic, but I've gotten older and I've learned from wisdom teachers that it's dangerous to be extreme in any direction. What's overwhelmingly beneficial for most people is to use both the healing tools from the East and the West, from the realms of the spirit and the material. If you're in a similar situation and you found yourself needing to go on medication post-pandemic, I want you to know you're not alone. And I also don't want you to listen to Michael and I and think that plant medicine, breathwork, etc. are the only answers to what may be causing you physical and mental stress. All right? My guest today, Michael Hemet, started on the woo path at a very early age because of his mom's psychic abilities and influence. He started a dedicated yoga and meditation practice around the age of 19 while he was attending university for engineering, but remained a pretty staunch skeptic during that time. That is until the call of his spirit won and he left the land of engineering for the land of woo. He is now a shamanic practitioner who teaches a unique combination of breathwork and other healing methods. He's learned techniques from various spiritual teachers over the years, including the tricky teachers associated with plant medicine. 
Michael and I are similar in that we were seekers at an early age and we tried a lot of weird woo shit to try to uncover hidden truths. The cool thing about being like that is you collect insanely interesting stories. The shitty part about being like that is that you almost inevitably put yourself through an extraordinary amount of suffering. For instance, Michael's stories about working with the spirit of ayahuasca and other intense hallucinogenic plants will blow your fucking mind, but also will probably make you never want to fuck around and find out, you know? We talk about the importance of our intuition, some of his experiences with non-physical, non-human entities, including the Archangel Michael, the details of some of his most harrowing plant medicine encounters, the power of breathwork, his book, Waking the Shaman, and more. Let me put a quick trigger warning here. We do talk about a crazy experience that includes wanting to unalive yourself Also, if you're sensitive to hearing about barf, like throwing up, we talk about that a fair bit too. In Michael's explanation of the different kinds of ayahuasca, he mentions MAOI as being part of the plant combination. You may have heard that term before, but just in case you haven't, they are an extremely strong class of antidepressants that treat depression by preventing the breakdown of the brain chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. (laughs) That's the funniest word, norepinephrine. Also, not that it'll probably help anyone, but it stands for monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Just keep that in your mind. We also talk about the Fey, and most of you are probably familiar with that term at this point. But just in case you're rusty, the easiest definition of the Fey would be an earth-based entity or an entity connected to nature. I also tend to use the term ultra-terrestrial to explain the Fey as well. And an ultra-terrestrial is generally referring to a non-human entity of natural or supernatural origin that is indigenous to planet Earth or from an alternate dimension that is somehow connected to what we perceive as our shared reality in this dimension. And while we're at it, extraterrestrial then means of or from outside the Earth or its atmosphere. So depending on who you're talking to, UFOs, aliens, the Fae, ghosts, etc. could potentially be part of either or both categories. It gets really hairy when you get into this. I did a whole like two-part episode about the Fae, and we were talking about fairies, and that's how I answer Michael in this episode you're about to listen to, but it's a little bit more broad than that. However, they can be used interchangeably, so that's why it gets confusing there. All right, I really have to stop talking now. We are going to just jump right into a spot where Michael talks about having sort of an existential spiritual crisis and what it feels like to ignore your intuition. Let's do the woo. From the pre-call, it sounds like you had a spiritual, I would call it like an existential crisis where you're like, my soul is dying. I cannot do this anymore. I guess what I want to know, is that what started the path of woo for you? Or did that just make you double down? Well, the path of woo started from my mom. My mom is like a very spiritually oriented person and one of the most psychic people that I know. Now, in that regard, 
being so materialist as I was when I was younger and very, very, very skeptical, she would introduce me to these ideas of speaking with non-physical intelligences and being able to hear and see things that people typically don't hear and see. I just, ah, mom's being crazy and, you know, whatever. And I just kind of disregarded a lot of it just as my mom being kind of esoteric and and whatever. But it's kind of like, uh, in a sense, like planting seeds. She never asked my permission to to have the abilities that she had. And it turns out that my grandfather on my mom's side, he was very psychic. And I didn't even realize that until much later, I was reflecting on all these weird things that he would say to me. <laughs> like, you know, he would just kind of like suggest things for me to look at and to practice. And I just thought like, what is he talking about? And then years later, I was like, oh, he was training me. A lot of this stuff was just like slowly, slowly percolating up into my consciousness from my environment. And I'd have to say that working with plant medicine was a huge part of that as well. You know, it really boosts you in the sense of kind of taking these intense crash courses in awareness. It was like the the friction from my, let's say, soul's direction and the cultural direction that I felt like I was being pushed in. And, and that friction came to a head. And that's what you're talking about when I, when I described that experience of being at work and just feeling like, my, like I was being crushed, you know, because you can only tolerate the intensity of the pressure for so long. And in fact, I'd say I was fairly lucky that my tolerance level was lower than a lot of people. Some people out of stubbornness or their own internal strength, they tolerate it for way longer than I did. My heart goes out to those guys because... <laughs> It can be just be brutal to live something out of alignment for decades. Yeah, just that same thing that I'm so grateful that I'm not someone who could get stuck in that for that long because mm-hmm. something inside of me, it triggers. I don't know, it, it pops up and it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And, and I feel like they just don't have that. Or if they do, like you said, it's just really dampened. You know, it's easy for people to ignore things that are not part of the program you know, they ignore it. And then, and then also there's just so much self-doubt. That's, that's a huge part of it. And that, you know, that goes back to like why I wrote the book. There's so much doubt. People will see or hear things and they'll get these messages that are coming through clearly. And yet they're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I disregard it. That's even if they're lucky enough to even consciously process it, where I, do, I think that a lot of people in the more metaphysical sense It's like if someone were to give you instructions in another language, your mind just doesn't do anything with it. You might acknowledge that it happened, but you just can't do anything with it. And I think that if people's perception of reality is very, very rigid, then this information comes through just as another language. And so they may acknowledge it in a very diminished way, but it doesn't register because Mm -hmm. It's too far out of what they're accepting. Yeah. You will always notice more inclination towards the woo with artists than engineers, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. always, you know, cause yeah. they're used to being open. They're used to saying like, well, what if, like, how could this magic occur? Whereas engineers, and this was my huge problem was like, how can this thing go wrong? Like, that's what I did. The whole purpose of, of a lot of these long-term space programs was to try to determine how things can go wrong. 
you develop a filter for that almost, you know, you, you orient yourself towards not really seeing the possibilities of how things can go right. And the magic of how things will unfold as much as just being hyper concerned about all the failure modes. It puts a really negative bias on, on perception. So I'd say like, that was a huge challenge for me to kind of like undo that perception you know, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. It will, it's a process. I mean, we tend to, as a species, I think, focus on the negative. And so mm-hmm. that sort of mindset, is, it's like in tech, it's in engineering, mm-hmm. it's in, you know, it's in the entertainment industry. People come in and they're literally taught to look for like, what's fucked up here. And so yeah. it's training your already susceptible brain to look even deeper into the negativity and, yeah. and to focus on it 40 to 60 to 80 hours a week at your job. That's probably eating your soul. I, I think it's super problematic. And I, and I think I love what you said about it comes in as a foreign language, like the, the intuition that's coming to you, telling mm-hmm. you to, Hey, get off of this hamster wheel, stop with this tape, so to speak, mm-hmm. because that's, I think that is, is what happens. And, and I found myself when I worked in the entertainment industry, that it's almost like a language, like you use it or you lose it. And if you mm-hmm. stop using it, you lose it. And so then it, it might not have sounded like another language, but it starts to, and then it's just like, Oh, there's just the shit that comes through and, and you want it, you crave it. Cause you're like, Oh, I used to have intuitions about things. I used to like mm-hmm feel things and, and know when to do things psychically. And then it's just nothing there. And it's not that it went away. It's just, you're not listening right anymore. I think. Yeah, that was, that was an important thing. My, my mentor told me was because he's unbelievably psychic too. I mean, it just the connections that he has and things that he can do. And I asked him one time, you know, we'd meet up for lunch and, you know, I, I really wish I could hear things the way that you do. And he's like, and, or, and to be connected the way you are. And he said, you are. I said, well, why does it come through like that? The way, because, you know, he channels so effortlessly. And he said, the reason why it comes through the way it does for me is because I trust it. And that was a huge revelation for me. And this is what I'm saying for myself and for a lot of people who are just not seeing this stuff is because they, I think they do see it. They just don't trust it. So they don't give it its proper validity. And for that reason, they disregard it as meaningless or, you know, something like that. But trusting the information that's coming through is such a critical part of developing that, you know, we'll call it a muscle or a skill or or whatever. And then the more you trust it, just like all relationships, the more you trust it, you lean on it. And then, oh, that was correct. That did help me. This is useful. This is meaningful. And, you know, then the trust builds on itself and you get better and better at it. That's so true. I have been a little bit out of the woo the past few, I would say like the past month. And these are things that I need to hear. So it's so great <laughs> that this is happening because it's true. It, it is the trust. I remember I spent some time at an ashram in India and the yogi there who was an excellent teacher, he explained that like what's missing in the West is one of the central things, there are many things where it should show, but one of the things is that we don't have faith. Mm. We, we really have a hard time with faith. And so we went all the way to the other end of the spectrum and there's like staunch atheists, which she was like, that's fine if you're an atheist, but you have to have faith in something, you know, something bigger than you, because if not, it gets really lonely and, and sad in there. And 
it feels like you're just an island and that you're not able to get those like inspirations that other people are when you're just as divinely deserving, worthy Mm -hmm. of that as anybody else. I mean, we all come from the same shit. But it's hard to see that in that space, though, that you need to have that trust and that over time you build that trust and then you can have even more faith because you've mm-hmm. put in that that time, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think that's why what you're doing is so important because all this stuff is is so invalidated by modern science and Western culture. And so that's the most harmful thing you can do for someone whose mind is opening is to tell them that they're crazy and take this pill. It's like, no, you're not crazy. Well, I mean, some people are, but discernment, (laughs) Um, but for the most part, you're not crazy. These are natural, beautiful, divine, wonderful things. Pay attention and use your discernment with the information that's coming in. You know, if you get a message to hurt yourself or someone, be wise about it. Where is that coming from? But honestly, like that fear of getting like demonic influence, I've never had it. I don't know anyone that has. It's probably somewhere, but it's so, so, so small. It's really, it's a very, very minuscule part of these things. When I was always trying to find the way that things would fail, then a lot of that came back down to trust because it was like, well, I can't see how I'm going to pay for this or manage that or get here, or I I can't see how that's all going to happen. And yet I know that it's important. So it must. And then that, that was a, a big leap of faith for me is just to trust that all the stuff that I'm doing is going in a direction and it's not actually Michael's responsibility to see how it's going to happen. It's my responsibility to be present for it as it's happening and to show up for for all these processes and give my best effort. It's a lot about control too. And I think a lot of people don't want to admit that, myself included Mm -hmm. sometimes, because you think that you're just going to handle it and that, oh shit, like you said, how am I going to pay for this thing? For example, you know, Mm -hmm. you think, oh, well, I have no idea. And here are all the ways that my limited little nugget (laughs) in, in here can think of, and none of them are working right now. So I have to force and push and have all this this pressure to create this to happen. And it's going to be really, really hard. And Mm -hmm. instead of like what you said, which is this surrendering to the fact that it's meant to happen and Mm -hmm. there are ways to get there that are beyond your comprehension. It requires trust though. It requires Uh that faith, that faith in something that's bigger than you. And that's so hard for us in our material, very concrete culture. It's Uh everything is based on like things and stuff and stuff and things. Yeah. When your mind opens up to the woo, you realize that there are other non-physical allies that love you and care for you and, and are, are setting things up for you, for your benefit, you know, looking out for you, whispering guidance. I mean, all the time. And the more you trust it, the more often it happens. And, and I'm getting in that place where it's like, frequently guiding me with little things. Just yesterday, it was like so nice and warm out. And I was like, I guess now you should bring a hoodie. All right. So I threw a hoodie in my backpack and I'm so glad I did. (laughs) Whereas another time I'm like, why would I need that? Leave it at home. Little things like that. Just little nice things. Uh. I think you're just sort of explaining like the difference between being in the flow of life Mm -hmm. and nature versus fighting all the time, which is Again, I think really intrinsic to our 
culture. We we work really hard and we don't respect our elders and we overemphasize materialism. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You brought up like demonic influence and how that's uh-huh. like such a really low percentage of something that can happen. And I think this is a new thing that they're kind of toying around with in Hollywood and paranormal land. And that's that like there are demons everywhere. And maybe it's not even new. Yeah. They've been doing that for a while, that like everything is a demon. I think it's important that you said that and, and acknowledged that it's it is very rare for that to happen. And that generally speaking, it's your own internal, you know, traumas, karmas, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call them. It's not going to be a demon from the other side. Yeah. What I've noticed is, so like, if you're, if you're walking through a forest and a pine cone falls out of a tree and hits you on the head, is that pine cone evil or demonic? Probably most people would just say, no, it's just something natural of the natural world that occurred. I didn't like it that it hit me, but I don't think that, you know, it, I, I think it'd be a hard sell to, to get someone to admit that, that this pine cone was evil. But in order for someone to create that kind of psychological structure of good versus evil, they have to create like a victim perpetrator model for that idea to sit on. And so there's just things that happen. Some things just happen and other things happen for your benefit. It's just that you might not see it at the time. So sometimes people will say like, I was in a car accident and oh my God, that would be so awful. Yeah. But then, but then I met this person and then I got this job and like, because of that accident, then, you know, the perception of evil and demons typically only makes sense if you're looking at a very, very narrow band of time and I'm not discounting the experiences themselves. I'm just suggesting that a lot of things that are perceived as being negative or demonic are actually for your benefit. And and another example is like when someone says something to me that's really mean or offensive, then I could say, oh, that person, maybe not that that human is a demon, but like there's something evil here. Well, that that's one way of going about it. And, and if I want to indulge a, cer- a certain sense of victimhood, I could do that. But another way of looking at it is to say, this person is just transmitting some information to me and I am sensitive to that. Something that they've transmitted to me is pushing on a sensitivity that I have. And not to discount the upset, but to acknowledge that that what somebody else said upsets me actually shows me about myself, you know, and, and in that sense, okay, well, they're not a demon or evil. They're actually my ally in the sense that they're helping me to see myself. It just really depends on how you want to look at it and how you want to define things. But personally, I think it's just, it just is way more beneficial to the individual's development to see things as like, if anything is upsetting me, or I feel like I'm being attacked, how am I perceiving myself such that this attack feels legitimate so that I can actually learn from it and kind of weave my soul back together to to fix that hole, to fix right. that deficiency or inadequacy in, in my perception of myself. In, in my perception, I think that uh, the most accurate way of describing it is an, in, is an ignorance. If you don't believe that you are full and complete and whole and worthy of love, all the time, then other information can come in and push on this sensitivity in your self-perception, but it's to your benefit. 
where you have self-doubt and self-loathing or resentment or anger, all these things, they can be revealed to you with challenging relationships. So it's not evil. <laughs> you know, some people, you know, they, they see things filtered through their own mind that can be really intense and scary. So again, I'm not discounting those. I just think that there's, there's a lot to be learned from it it's more complex than it is complicated mm. concept because it does, it is sensical. Complicated is usually it's nonsensical. And this is, this is sensical, but it, it's just something that we don't think about often. I always call it the primordial ooze, like pre-manifestation to form, you know, like the OG OG. And we all come from that and everything comes from that. Then mm -hmm. anything that's out of alignment of knowing that is just ignorant of the fact that they come from that primordial ooze. So exactly. It, so that's the definition of evil. But that's a, I mean, we do not live with that kind of vernacular on an everyday basis. And another thing you, you reminded me of is that Buddhist, can't remember the quote, let me think. If someone gives you a gift and you don't receive it, to whom does the gift belong? If somebody gives you a gift and you don't receive it, so if you're at a higher vibration, if you don't receive it, it just stays with that person. Mm -hmm. But if you do receive it, then it's something that affects you negatively. And so the goal is then to worry about you being in a vibration where those things don't bother you, where mm -hmm. you don't have to take the shit sandwich. It'll just stay with them and they'll be in a shitty mood for the rest of the day. Yeah. Some, you know, people can ask you to dance all day long and some people look like fun partners. Some people don't. <laughs> it's like, I want you to engage in this codependency with me. Nah, no thanks. I want you to be a victim of my immature resentments or angers. No thanks. Of course, some people who feel like a victim and someone says, I need you to be the victim of my anger. They're like, okay. And then they do that until it hurts too much. And then they realize that that's not what they really want. And so again, you know, it's like this interesting thing where, and this is a super tough pill to swallow. But the person who invites you to be the victim of their toxicity can be perceived as a teacher because they're showing you, this is such a hard pill for people to swallow. They're showing you where you have this issue. And so that's, that's actually when you know that the lesson has come full circle, when you can actually look at your perpetrator and say, thank you. Like, I get it. Thank you. And also like our relationship is done. Go in peace. <laughs> I don't know why this always sounds great to me, but like when you're done dancing that dance, I'm just no longer interested in participating in whatever it is that you offer. Yeah. But that is like the hardest fucking pill. Like it, it is. Because, oh yeah. And it still fucks <laughs> me up too. The most I know is that it's, it is a dance of sorts and that you're uh -huh. dancing together in a thing that's probably beyond this existence that we agree on as reality right now. If you're, hanging out with all your friends and everyone's being nice to you and you guys are having a great time then and someone were to say do you feel connected to everybody say yeah sure is it clear to you that you are all of the same singular consciousness and you feel so connected to everybody that that truth comes through very easily but when you have a relationship that is not loving that's very challenging. And in the case, like, you know, the extreme cases of like rape and torture and murder and all these things, it makes it, it makes the distance of realization much greater where, you know, when you have these like really atrocious acts of violence against 
other people. It just makes it more challenging to accept that we are all part of, like in your terms, like the same ooze or the same singular consciousness. Let's say you were just really good at staying connected to your truth that we're all one singular consciousness while things are going swimmingly, but that you're being almost challenged to say, can you hold on to that truth even when it seems like it's not true? And that's where these really intense challenges come up is to say, are you absolutely certain that what you believe is is correct? Because if you are, then you will see the divine in all these things happening. Whereas if you're not, then you'll slide kind of back into that perception of separateness. That's a good point. It's a challenge. It brings me to that like thought that, you know, those who are the hardest to love are the ones that need it the most. It's kind of oh, yeah. the idea that it's like super, super easy to love the ones that are like fun times. <laughs> and it reminds me of the Buddhist meditation of sort of starting the the meta where you sort of start with somebody you dig, you know, mm. and you work on that for a while. And then, you know, after a while you get like somebody that pissed you off at the grocery store and that you just saw them one time. And then you kind of yeah. work your way up to fucking Trump, you know, and yeah. the, the douche nozzles of the world and, and you send them love little by little yeah. and you get, you practice sending love to your enemies, which is for those out there who are listening, who are like, this is some fucked up shit. Jesus Christ <laughs> was all about this shit because it's always Christians. Yeah. It's almost always Christians. And it's so funny because their Lord and Savior is the one who was like the ultimate love thy enemy. Yeah. And in fact, going back to the whole ignorance thing, it's like, and again, you know, I'm not Christian, but I think that there's a lot of really amazing wisdom in the Bible. And one thing that that I think is worth mentioning here, I think is like third day on the cross. He's about to die. He's suffered unbelievably. And he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my God, that's a, the example of being so perfectly attuned to the truth mm -hmm. that even though his body is like in agonizing pain and he's going to die, he still has that connection to, to tell him to be like loving and forgiving. Yeah. I mean, I Jesus mean, was just... a bad bitch. He was. <laughs> he really, really was. I get got goosebumps when you say that because that's one of my favorite lines. You know, it's so powerful. So yeah. powerful. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I aspire to be that forgiving, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Hard work. I, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I usually come around to it, but from the fuck you cut me off on the road. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, my first pass is always like real scrappy. And then, yeah. you know, I come back crying later and I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that uh, just real quick and that I, that I realize about that makes it easier for me is that I'll fight with people in my mind. I'll have a, you know, something unpleasant occur and I'll fight with them in my mind. And then I'll realize like, wait a minute, I'm just creating so much stress in myself and they're not even here anymore. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. they're, they, you know, something on the road or at the grocery store, like you said, or even family members or, you know, they're not even here. I'm by myself. And yet I'm choosing to continue the argument mm -hmm. when in, in fact I could just let it go. Yeah. You let know. it go. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. I think we all do to, to varying degrees, you know, that whole thing where you like get the, the best comeback, like hours oh, yeah. later. I'm so good at that. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, I wish I was that fast in the moment, but then do I, because it would have been gnarly. So probably not because yeah. I would have really hurt their feelings, but you know, it's always yeah. good. Like three hours later. Yeah. I'm always an action superstar in my, in my imagination. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I threw this double roundhouse to really end the argument. <laughs> exactly. I actually want to take this back to you said some things just happened a little while mm-hmm. ago. And that's something I get hung up on too, actually. Do you really mean that? Like some things just happen? Because, you know, there was another a guru I spent time with in, in India. He's one of those like stayed in a cave for five plus years with nothing but a loincloth guys. Like he was okay. like, really, really psychic. You know, we walk up or whatever the one day, my friend and I, he gets stung by a bee. I think it was a bee. Something like that, like bit him. And he stops completely. And he was asking himself aloud, what? did I do to make the bee sting me? And Mm. then he like went into this meditative thing and he figured it out and he was like, Oh, I did this. Okay. I will do this to, to like reset the balance of the thing. And it really stuck with me because I was like, is that really why the bee stung you, (laughs) you know, or did the bee just fucking sting you because bees sting? Yeah. I don't know this guy, obviously, but it depends on where you kind of sit with your perception of the work, like the, the universe consciousness, we have a tendency to always create context for events through story arcs that makes it easy for us to navigate the world by creating like kind of a, this cause and effect thing. I did this. So the bee stung me. So now I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to go off on this and this and this. And, and then your mind creates a story like that. It really makes sense. However, the universe is creative. And one thing that makes that really clear, it's like, when you have a thought, do you think to yourself, I'm going to have a thought or does the thought just happen? And so when you, the thought just happens, exactly. And that's the way really everything happens. Because if you were to say, well, no, not everything, some things are planned to happen. Well, the planning is then the impetus of the thing that happened. Right. So, so at some point when you go all the way back, everything is spontaneous and creative. So in my example saying like, well, some things just happen, that would be along the lines of saying, well, you're just close to the, to the initial creative event. Whereas the hole in the roof led to the thing, led to the thing. And now my carpet is ruined or, you know, like you could create that line, but essentially we live in a creative space that is spontaneous and to create storylines through it is just a way for the conscious mind to make sense of a lot of events that are separated in time. Okay. So then the question is, can you get to a higher level of vibration or consciousness, like a high enough level to where you can avoid the bees sting? I mean, I guess, I don't know why you'd want to. Well, tell me why you you wouldn't want to. I guess it depends on why you think you're here in the first place. You know, there's a lot of experiences to be had as a, as a human being. Well, okay. I don't want a bee sting. Okay, fine. Because that might be too intense. Well, I don't want to eat anything that's too salty or I don't like the, like, I don't want it to be too cold. It's like, well, you know, the body's pretty durable and there's just something about being born into physical reality that I don't know, it's a weird thing to, to kind of say out loud almost, but like there's a certain enjoyment of an experience, even though it's not pleasurable. Mm -hmm. It's like, why do people go on roller coasters? It's like, why do people jump out of airplanes? 
there's just certain experiences that that they're very intense. But I think that if you live a whole life without ever being stung by a bee, you're missing out. <laughs> okay, so just to fuck around here, to uh-huh. play devil's advocate, what if it's not a bee sting? What if it's the murder and the rape and the extreme shit we're talking about? Do you think there is then a way to increase your consciousness enough to avoid something like that happening? Which would then say like, maybe shit doesn't just happen. Well, I think that the most reliable way to avoid bad things happening to you, and I'm saying bad is, you know, obviously a perception, is to reorient yourself out of any kind of remote sense of victimhood. Because to go along with what I'm saying, the only reason why we'll say, quote unquote, bad things happen to you is to push you out of a sense of victimhood. So if you see people as being allies for your benefit to teach you about yourself, then you don't need certain lessons. To make it a little bit easier, it's like if you appreciate the value of good physical health, exercise appropriate for you, uh, you know, your body type and your age and you eat healthy food, then you'll probably not really experience much physical dysfunction. But if you don't appreciate your body and you don't exercise, take care of yourself properly, eat like shit and all that, then the likelihood of having cancers or tumors or digestive problems or, you know, like joint issues, all, all the things, you know, when you don't take care of yourself, then these things can come up. And even in that case, I'd say it's not the work of the devil or evil or you're being punished. It's that you're out of alignment. And so your, your body is telling you by giving you these feedback signals of discomfort that you're out of alignment. Mm. And so if you're in alignment with your body saying, this is important, I'm going to take care of it, then you don't get those feedback signals because they're irrelevant. So to go back to what you said, it's like the most surefire way that I can ever see of, of avoiding people coming after you in any kind of like attacking or traumatic way is just to be in, in, in alignment with, with love. That's the hard thing though, because th- there's this weird thing where it's like, if you try to convince yourself that you are loving towards everybody because you're afraid of being victimized, then that's not really loving, right? Th- there's a trick there. It's, a, it's almost like you have to accept the possibility that you will be a willing participant in someone else's trauma and that's okay to be fully accepting of how that might occur. And from that place, most likely you will not be required to participate. But then again, you know, I don't know all the rules. I mean, it's something to chew on. Yeah. It's a a tough one. It is. It is. And, And that's the whole thing is these challenges are for people that are strong. And I think that that's an important point to make. I don't believe that anyone is challenged above their skill because I just don't think that the that the universe works that way. So it's the strongest people that receive the most intense challenges. These things happen because you're strong and mm. and not because you're weak. Finding the purpose in it can help you as opposed to indulging it, which again going back to our society it's like we don't emphasize the importance of resolving root trauma. We just try to pacify the symptoms. And so, you know, if you, okay, I'm done pacifying the symptoms. I want to actually be healthy from the bottom up. Then, you know, it takes a lot of courage. I mean, it takes so much courage and strength to be able to look at these really intense root traumas 
and to, you know, to heal them and grow out of them. Yeah, it really does. Let's pivot because okay. I feel like there's, <laughs> there's so many more things I want to go through. So let's go back to okay. what we started with like 10 years ago. You pivoted from the senior engineer to mm-hmm. what? Like what happened? And did you do the plant medicine jam after you quit that job? Did you do it before that? Like what did your like trajectory look like from that world to the land of woo? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I was particularly courageous in this transition. <laughs> you know, it might look that way from the outside, but it took me years to to get through that. I went the standard track of going to a corporate job and then I got my master's degree and and it was like everything was set up, you know, making, you know, the quote unquote good money and I had no cares about financing the kind of life that I wanted to live. And then the plant medicine started that around 2013, I think, because I had been experimenting with psychedelics, but the the transition between like exploratory experimentation and then being reoriented towards healing through this one guy who's just one of my mentors, love him to death. He's like a father to me. He basically opened my perception to it's not about talking to aliens. It's about healing yourself. And I'll get into why that's critical in a second. So then he reoriented me and I'm eternally grateful for that. And then that started this process of like slowly weaning me out of the corporate world. I started doing like leaves of absence. So, you know, I'd take off like all my vacation, then I'd take off for another month and extra. And I did that for a couple of years. And in this, in my case, it was a total leap of faith. I was like, I don't know where I'm going or where I'm going to land, but I got to get out of here because I'm dying. So like God or whatever, whoever's paying attention, like I'm trusting you because I know you're telling me to leave here. But that process took a couple of years. It was a really difficult thing. It's like undoing a strip of Velcro, like one hook at a time. (laughs) You know, it was just like excruciating. But then once I got out, it was amazing. And then even then it's like my faith of how things were going to work out for me. It still didn't even really take traction for a couple of years. I kind of just floated around for almost two years until I started working again and doing things that felt like they were in alignment with my soul and things that I was doing to contribute to society instead of working for a defense contractor, being part of the war machine. (laughs) My work wasn't specifically weapons, but it's all kind of weapons there. So to go back to the the importance of of healing your own self and and how that actually is critical to the woo, I use this analogy a lot because I think it applies in everywhere. But if you imagine a tree and the woo is up in the clouds, that tree can only get so tall and so broad before it becomes very unstable and dangerous to itself. Unless the roots going into the ground grow in equal proportion to the canopy. And that's a huge problem that I see in the medicine community, as well as spiritual people in general. If you look around, a lot of people who are very spiritually oriented, typically what I've seen is that they have a lot of health problems because they're not integrated in their bodies enough. And it's just that there's these psychic abilities, what they call the cities, S-I-D-D-H-I, I think. They're so seductive that you're like, oh my God, this is so amazing. It's so interesting. Fuck everything else. 
It's like, no, 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 no. You have to take care of your body. You have to. That's your root system. It's so important because when the roots are super strong and developed, then the canopy grows comfortably and easily. And all these things that you have to struggle to reach to open up to, they become easy. That's been my experience was I went way too far in the upward growth towards the sky and all that. And I kept having to effort so intensely in order to open these doors through plant medicine. And then I started finding out that actually developing my root system, grounding, getting really in the dirt, then all this other stuff just started happening naturally and easily. When you say getting in the dirt, do you mean literally literally that, getting in the dirt that's yeah. how you grounded for yourself and because i'm sure the listeners are probably thinking like well okay great so metaphorically then, yeah what, <laughs> what do i do like what what do i do to ground myself or to help those roots really grow deeply yeah i think anything that you do that is natural and i and i don't mean like to stop wearing deodorant that's good <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be in alignment with natural cycles put your phone down sometimes minimize lighting after dark. This is one of the things, I don't know if this is like political, but like women throughout history have been way more in touch with psychic phenomena than men. And it's like, the obvious reason is that women are just more in touch with natural cycles because of their periods. You know, it's just like, so clear why that would happen. Whereas men, you know, typically have more, more difficulty to, to get into those cycles because we're not, forced into them from our bodies with all the gardening and planting and cultivation, the natural cycles of the weather, the seasons, all these things, they, they really ground you in, in nature. And, and that's a big part of becoming emotionally and physically healthy is to relax into these things that you take advantage of when there's opportunity and you relax when it's time to rest, as opposed to, again, you know, like modern society in the West, just go, 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 go don't pay attention to your body. Don't pay attention to anything else. Just go after whatever you want because you're entitled and blah, blah, blah. I think resting and relaxing in the natural cycle, it's a critical part of, of being healthy. Again, it's developing these root systems. And, and part of that is, is the emotional healing. And so not to veer too much off, but consciousness is unlimited and blah, 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 and so forth. But the individual <laughs> self is limited. You only have a finite amount of awareness to do whatever it is that you want to do. And it consumes a lot of that awareness to hold on to ideas and belief systems. So if you are harboring resentment or anger or self-loathing or any of these things, you know, you're consuming energy to hold on to them. And so when you decide, okay, I choose to forgive this and you let it go, you reclaim that volume of energy. And then now you can intentionally use that energy with something else. And that's what's been really clear for me is that the more I let go of things, the more resources I reclaim to do anything else that I want with it. And so that's the significant connection between the healing of the individual to development in the woo and the perception. When you reclaim all this energy, your ability to perceive exponentially increases. People spend a lot of time meditating and doing certain practices and mantras and, and you know, really trying to reach towards the sky. And I, I did that. And what worked for me the best was healing myself. And then the reaching just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the growth, the canopy growth just happened. 
this happens all the time in the land of woo and in the land of like paranormal investigation too. It's a lot mm-hmm. about like getting out there and getting into the stuff or witchcraft. That's a big one. Like people are mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do this spell, you know, like all the way down there. And it's like, but, but why, you know, because that's not going to feel good because like you said, you know, you don't have the right roots for that. You mm-hmm. kind of need to know where you are in that practice. And this crossed my mind today that like, I don't think Dumbledore uses a wand. Does he? I don't don't think he ever has a wand. And I think it's because he doesn't need one because his roots are so deep and he's cultivated his practice for so long, hundreds and hundreds of years, however long, I don't know how old he is, that he doesn't need a fucking wand. I think he has access to the elder wand or whatever. I don't remember, but he, he doesn't need one. And I think it's interesting to think about it that way that like, you don't need to, like you said, you don't need to push to get to the thing. The thing could just happen because you're really, really grounded. The emotional healing aspect is important too. That one's a little harder, I think. I don't know. They're both hard Mm -hmm. depending on where you're at. And we just came out of a pandemic where millions and millions of people were sitting in their homes, oftentimes in cities, myself included, where there was no motherfucking nature accessible. Mm -hmm. And you got completely out of the cycles of nature. Just like, now I'm just going to relax. Is that really relaxing if you're just watching TV and then switching to your phone? back and forth. Right. You know, it's like, that's not, that's not real relaxation. And I think right. a lot of people are really struggling with that transition because they don't have any roots right yeah. now. They did a study some years ago where they were trying to find what they call blue zones, places where people lived much, much longer. Like I think that if the average or like they they found cities where they had a high percentage of centurions and they said, well, what's, what's happening here? And they said, certain things with like diet and friendships. And then one of the things was that there was a density of trees. Once a community had a certain density of trees in the area, then they noticed that significantly improved quality of life and people lived longer. And to go to your point, it's like with the pandemic, I think that a lot of people are leaving big cities because they're spending more time at home and they're like, Ugh, there's something not right about this. You know, you can only have so many plants in your apartment until you just <laughs> say like, no, I need to, I need to go out somewhere, spread out a little bit because it feels better. You know, you said Dumbledore with the wand. I think, so my partner and I, we've been doing shamanic work for, for years. As time goes on, we use less and less stuff. And so you're totally right about that, where all these, we'll say like gadgets and tools and stuff, they definitely help to focus your intention, but as you get better at what you're doing, it becomes less and less significant. And so I don't know, I always kind of laugh to myself when I see somebody with an enormous array of gadgets mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, no, I get it. It's super fun. Like mm-hmm. being surrounded by your crystals and all that stuff. Like I get it. I mean, I have crystals and they're awesome, but it just depends on like how you perceive the energy moving through you and how aligned you are with that truth depends on like the efficacy of these tools. If all you are is this rattle, well then give me the rattle. You can go home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A a lot of really amazing and seasoned paranormal investigators say that the agree that the best investigative tool for all the paranormal shit that goes on is yourself. 
you are the yeah. best instrument. And so a lot of these shows, they're like, and then I have this camera and this camera. They are really cool and fun and they look cool on yeah. TV. But I think when you're really in it, something that's missing is that there's not enough of the like psychic element. And they're starting to bring them in a little bit on some of the shows, mm-hmm. but I think there needs to be even more because we're really out of balance. We're not a little, we're really yeah. out of balance with like the tech versus the intuition. But also with witchcraft, you're taught in the very, very early stages of witchcraft and like initiation and neophyte status that your mind is your greatest tool, like oh, beyond yeah. anything that you use. And the the lower you are on the learning scale, so to speak, the more tools you need. Yeah. Yeah. It's like training wheels. They help, but you want to grow out of them. And that's really when you realize that the mastery is occurring and developing is that that you're not reliant on these tools that that's all that they are as tools. They can help you, but, but they're not necessary. Yeah. And did you want to communicate with aliens? Was that your original intent? Like you said earlier, you know, it's not about communicating with aliens. It's about, I think your mentor said that it's about healing uh-huh. yourself. Were you kind of going into it with like, I want to speak to all the non-human entities. Oh, for and- sure. Yeah. Okay. Who wouldn't? I mean, <laughs> what course. the hell? Yeah. <laughs> that part of it was later. The first part of it, because I, I've been a very nature-oriented person for a long time. So I would I know, talk about my drug use for a second. I'd just take a bunch of mushrooms and go hiking in the woods for three days. I'd take my dog and we'd go camping on a three-day trip and I'd take mushrooms and I'd talk to the trees and feel like the mountain spirit and I could listen to the water, not it bubbling through, but like it would, it would be like this almost like chamber music, like angelic chamber music I could hear from the water. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I mean, who wouldn't want that? I mean, it's it's so awesome. And then, you know, so I was having these intense natural phenomena of that type, but then the variety of non-physical beings is so vast that it's hard to tell if something is an alien, meaning that it's a physically manifested being somewhere else that you happen to communicate with psychically, or if it's just a non-physical being that's in your vicinity that you're now able to communicate with. I I don't know. I'm not sure if it's, if it's even meaningful to make that distinction. But when you realize that these beings are there and a lot of them want to communicate with you, it just blows your mind, you know, especially if you had no awareness of it before. And now it's obvious that it is true. And you're like, oh shit, blinders come off. You live in a whole new universe. It's astounding. (laughs) Yeah. you, You didn't say scary. Was it, was it ever scary, any of these experiences? Uh, and, and can you elaborate on any, like, let's say, you know, a top one that, that you experienced that felt like you were communicating with non-physical, non-human entity? The only times that things were scary was actually kind of going back to th- just being ignorant. I had a vision of a human-looking man, and I can see him now in my mind, and his eyes were red. And I interpreted that as being evil at the time because I was so new and I was like, Oh fuck. I, I got really scared and it really freaked me out. And I was like, Oh, I, I don't want to go back into the space. It's, it's too scary. But I found out later that just like someone's eyes are blue because of genetics and someone's eyes are brown and you know, like wherever this person being was from, their eyes happened to be red and I interpreted it in this way. And I later apologized and like made amends. And, you know, it's just like this weird thing. And then one time I was confronted with the spirit of ayahuasca and 
that was really scary just because her being is so enormous that it was just really intimidating to be around such a powerful intelligence. It's hard to describe again, you know, but I wouldn't say like, I haven't, I haven't experienced things that were scary in the sense of being, feeling like demons are coming after me or anything like that. Like I've seen the Archangel Michael and that was a really profound experience because I was completely sober when it happened. I was actually guiding a breathwork session and I was kind of like just internally going through a little protection. I wouldn't call it prayer, but just like setting the stage, holding the container. And it was like, you know, like if you imagine like you're watching a TV and there's a split screen, like a vertical split, Mm -hmm. that's what it looked like. I was looking at this person and in the top half of my vision, it just went black. And I saw this kind of cherub looking head show up and I was like, oh, fuck, really stunning. It's never happened to me before. And it was just so clear crystal clear. This is the Archangel Michael. No doubt in my mind. And I was like, oh my God. Well, thanks for showing up. I've been, you know, we're, you know, trying to set this protection stage. And I said, will you protect this woman? And I thought that I was going to see it develop and he's going to come down and with his sword and his whatever, I don't know. Cause you know, he's always represented with a sword and a shield. Mm -hmm. None of that. What happened was the head faded back out. And again, I'm completely sober. My eyes are open. I looked down to my left and I saw these enormous white wings spreading out from my back. It was nuts. Well, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was absolutely bonkers. And again, you know, when I have these experiences, when I'm completely sober, there's so much more meaningful to me. You can't throw them away. You can't say, oh, well, I was, I was intoxicated or I was on something. It's like, no. I was totally sober. It was like two in the afternoon. No excuses. No skepticism is allowed here. And I was like, oh, shit. And they were just like enormous 10 foot, something like that, and enveloped the person I was working on. It was amazing. And I I have to say, like, I've had much, much crazier experiences with plant medicine, but they don't mean as much to me just because I, I, I feel like they're not as stable when you get somewhere on your own power, it stays with you as opposed to being pushed there through an external power. Then you just come back to where you started. I mean, you don't always come straight back. You, you never really go straight back, but people develop all kinds of psychic abilities while they're on acid and then the acid wears off and there's a residue, but it doesn't stay. Whereas if you open your mind in a more natural and organic way, what you develop, it typically stays with you. That was a lot of stuff I want to ask you about now. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. So, well, first, have you ever had a bad trip? Yeah, but again, it's a matter of perception. So one time, probably one of the worst experiences that I've ever had, I think it was ketamine because it's very dissociative. And so I was like really high on it. And I just had this perception like like if you imagine your hand this is michael right here and this is another manifestation of myself and so is this and this and this but if you withdraw back into your essential self or your soul then you can look out at all these individual manifestations mm-hmm. and so that was the perception that i was sitting at was like oh i had withdrawn from my individual self to this soul perspective and i was looking out at these individual beings that i was generating well this is how it turned on me was from that soul perspective, 
I was like, oh, well, Michael is just like a fingernail that can be clipped and discarded. So I should just kill myself. <gasps> and yeah. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> yeah, fucked you up. Oh, my God. That was probably the the worst because it wasn't like, oh, I feel bad about myself or I, you know, th- th- there was none of that. It was just like from this higher perspective, the individual is meaningless. And I don't know where that narrative came from because it's absolutely not true. And I'm really glad that I was able to realize that it's not true before doing anything really stupid and irreversible. Mm. That's probably the scariest thing, just to have that happen, to perceive myself as being disposable in any way, which is a really toxic idea. And I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, where that necessarily came from, but yeah, that, that was scary in that sense, like to come back from that and being like, oh shit, what was I thinking? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't remember what episode it is. A few episodes back, my mom and I do a retelling of when we recently did shrooms together and we had horrible trips, like one of the worst nights of my life. We took way too many like Mm. way, way, way too many, especially for us. We're super sensitive. It's the kind of thing that stays with you a little bit. You know, we did some ritual work to sort of work through it after Mm -hmm. the fact, and it's much better now, but I think you, you remember that, that insanity of the moment. Like you said, like, I'm just going to discard myself like a fucking fingernail. Yeah. Those thoughts, they're so toxic. And it's like, where did that come from? Why am I thinking Mm -hmm. this? Why is this my thought? Sadly, you can't fight it. You just got to wait for it to work its way out. Well, at least with shrooms. That's one of my big criticisms of, of doing plant medicine now. I think that I will always be grateful for it and so forth. But we stumble upon perspectives that we're not yet mature enough to integrate. And so that was the problem is that I brought my individual self with my insecurities and my ideas into that soul perspective and then created a story about myself not being important. And the only reason I was able to do that was because I was intoxicated. And so that's my criticism of a lot of these things now. Not to say that that they don't have their purpose, but doing them with proper guidance and preparation, you know, it's it's critical before you generate more trauma for yourself just through the realization. Which like, I did. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's get into the ayahuasca spirit. I have not done ayahuasca. So can you explain to me who she is and how you got to her? So it kind of started out of my, just my personal intensity, you know, like start smoking weed and then you want to level up to shrooms and acid and smoking DMT. And then how can I get more and more intense? And so the first time I did it was with a guy in Peru. I actually flew down there for this reason. I sat with the shaman there and we did that as well as Wachuma, which is, it's like a cousin of peyote. So it's a different, uh, San Pedro. And so we did like ayahuasca and the San Pedro in a sweat lodge. And it was like this whole thing and, you know, all the legit stuff. And it was epic, but the guy didn't hardly speak English. So there was almost no guidance. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was after that, that I came back and met this other couple that reoriented me towards the healing part of it. Fundamentally, so ayahuasca is actually a combination of two plants, the ayahuasca vine and the chacuna tree leaf. And I describe it as her, and most people do, simply because it seems like the medicine reveals itself in a feminine way. I don't know if it necessarily makes sense to be gendered, but it just always seems to come across that way. 
So, you know, you say the grandmother, you know, that's, that's typically what abuela. So from a chemical point of view, and I don't know a lot about this, but the reason why you combine the two plants is that one is DMT, the other is an MAOI. Now in psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, you have psilocin, which is actually a more complex molecule. That's both. It's basically a DMT and an MAOI together. That's why you can just eat the mushrooms and it's still orally active. Whereas DMT by itself is not orally active in the sense that you metabolize it very, very fast. So that's why when you just take DMT, people will smoke it and it's a very short experience. But you combine the two plants, now you have the DMT and the MAOI, then it prolongs the experience. One dose is usually three or four hours, but typically in an experience, you'll maybe take like two or three cups and then you'll have like roughly a six hour experience. And it's considered the grandmother. And if you want to create a hierarchy, it would be on the high end, if not the pinnacle. And yet, depending on who your shaman is, who cooked it, where you are, what your diet is like, you could have a more profound experience on acid or mushrooms than ayahuasca. And so you can have profound experiences just through isolation, which I've done, or breath work. The idea that it's actually the level up, which I was, I used to believe, it's not actually true. It's a very powerful medicine. You know, one of the things that I've been finding, because we've been doing breath work now for years, people come in and they say, that felt just like ayahuasca. It's like, well, yeah, because the ayahuasca is not taking you and moving you somewhere. What it's doing is it's just opening channels that are in you so that you can perceive things that you normally ignore. But you can open those channels through many ways. One through fasting or isolation, breath work, you know, these much more natural ways that have been used by all kinds of cultures, like all cultures probably since the beginning of humanity. It just happens to be that this way is a fairly reliable and accessible booster. The problem with it is that people can get reliant on it, create these kind of like guru complexes with the medicine, worshiping it, idolizing it. It's more than I am. And, and that's unhealthy. Whenever you have a teacher that you put on a pedestal, it's unhealthy. Yeah. And I see a lot of people doing that. But I would, again, you know, like the bee sting, if you get the opportunity, take it. <laughs> Don't take it all the time. Don't go searching for bees. But if mm-hmm. one comes to you, If it's delivered to you, well, you know, see what happens. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I contacted my friends who tripped way more than I did, you know, when we were younger. That wasn't my drug of choice when I was doing all my drugs. I didn't do hallucinogens for multiple reasons, but they, they all said to me, you know, like the bad trips are often more beneficial than the good Mm -hmm. trips because of the beasting, so to speak, because of the lesson, there's something there that's an uncovering, that's an intense amount of contrast that makes you like, shit, I got to change something usually. Yeah. And and that certainly was the case for our epically fucktastic trip that we had. So yeah. Yeah. That perception of, of a bad trip is just typically the resistance to whatever is trying to shift, whatever that medicine is pushing on is very uncomfortable, interpreted as a bad trip. It did feel oh, bad. For example, one time I I had asked ayahuasca to clear all my chakras thinking like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Well, there's a reason why the slow and steady approach is wise. Now, I didn't appreciate that reason at the time, (laughs) but I asked for all my chakras to be cleared all at once. And it was probably the most intense experience with plant medicine I've ever had. I mean, I was literally seizing on the floor for 
probably two hours, like people in the room were panicking. I mean, it was so gnarly. It felt like, and not any kind of hyperbolic way, it felt like my entire being was being pushed through a pinhead, like mm-hmm. a pin eye in a hole. I was like choking on myself with all this stuff. And uh, I mean, in a certain sense, like, like I'm always grateful for the lessons, but coming out of that, I was like, that was 51% recommend. Like <laughs> barely. <laughs> that like, it much? Was, and, no, no. Well, I mean, cause I'm always kind of like, there's no such thing as a bad trip, you know? But in that case, I was like, I would never, ever, ever recommend for anyone to do that mm-hmm. because it was so intense. I feel like I barely got through it. And I've been doing this for a long time. I have a lot of experience. I feel pretty durable with my physical self and my psychic self. And that was, it was just barely tolerable. I thought I was going to die. And then the physical part of it afterwards, because one of the things that ayahuasca is really famous for versus other medicines is the purgative effects. So when you move these energies, they manifest physically. And I was like stuck in a bathroom. Once I was able to even crawl around, I crawled to a toilet and I was there for the rest of the night. I mean, just purging, 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 purging. It was so intense. And yet you did it again. (laughs) Well, I never asked for that again. Careful what you wish for. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was definitely the moral of the story. And that really made it clear, you know, how much more meaningful it is to gently ease yourself into health. Because one, you just enjoy it more for sure. But I'm not certain that there isn't certain damaging effects from detoxing too hard. You, You can handle it and I did and I'm fine, but... I think that a lot of people going through that same thing, people have psychotic breaks doing purging too fast. And that's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah. I had a, went to a shaman once, a native American shaman. And I was, I was a lot like you, I I was doing drugs really young and I wanted to get to the like next thing. And for me, I also thought ayahuasca was like the pinnacle. I asked her, should I take it? And she was like, she used the metaphor of a mountain. And she was like, the ayahuasca is up here, higher up on the mountain, not the pinnacle, but higher up. And you're way down here at the base and you're trying to skip all that climbing, you know, all that Mm -hmm. actual like ground and just jump up to that spot up there. And she was like, you can do whatever you want, but that will be very uncomfortable for you. And she, I mean, the way she said it though, I, those were not her exact words, but it was much more like ominous. And I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't. And I had never have, because I, I just, I haven't made it far enough up the mountain, I guess. At the same time, you know, I don't know that every medicine is meant for everybody. Yeah. It might not be meant for me. (laughs) I really don't like barfing. Okay. I I know. Oh, well you have to get over that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause that comes with the territory. I mean, whenever I'd be in a group and someone can't vomit, it usually means that whatever's trying to move, just gets stuck somewhere and they're just miserable for six hours. Yeah. Cause the, the best you ever feel is after you release something. Yeah, I I will vomit. I just don't want to. Well, let me tell you about the shroom trip. My mom and I went through like this fucking bizarre thing together. And we also tripped with my wife. And my wife was just like on a different higher plane than us because she had a fine time except for (laughs) dealing with our shit show of a mess. We really did feel like my mom and I had to go through some shit together. Like it was this thing that we were, it just happened the way that it kind of fell in our laps. And this is the question I want to ask you. We felt that we were 
communing with the Fae. Then we spoke with some people who do shrooms specifically, like that's their jam and how the mycelium network is connected to the Fae. Have you experienced that specifically, like that brand of being, so to speak, while you were on these? I'm not sure what you mean by Fae. It's just fairies, but not like oh. little baby fairies flying around. It's like some some of them look like it's creepy shit too. I mean, that <laughs> there are a number of different types. And I, I think some would say, and, and you might be in this category, that like everything is fae. You know, everything is, it's just like kind of all the other that we just don't have a container for. But specifically yeah. it's fairies. I wouldn't be able to classify the beings. So something that I see a lot just in meditation, it's fairly common when you start doing isolation work it's almost like a blue wispy character it looks like kind of like a yeah okay so i would have thought that if i developed more and more of a relationship with it that it would manifest into a more defined creature but it never seems to and and i think that that's just the way it looks you know in its fully developed state now is that related to other beings of light that i've seen where they are just like a humanoid looking somewhat opalescent glow. Maybe. I have no <laughs> idea what the uh, ecology, I don't know, like how, how that's all split up. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, to like you were saying, I kind of just put them all together. If I were to delineate them in any way, it would be more like their departures from pure consciousness. You know, there's the pure consciousness that we call God or Tao or whatever. And then there are beings that are very close to that, which are like the highest level of differentiated deities. And that would be Christ consciousness, Buddha consciousness, Krishna, these things. And then from Krishna, then there's like Hanuman, the monkey god, and then, you know, angels. And then really a lot of these beings that that people interact with, they're not more in touch. They just are not physical. So they're just existing in a dimension that's not physical, but they're not more evolved. And some of them are tricksters and some of them are jerks. And for myself, I think, oh, just because I see them in this realm, that means that they're higher than I am. And that's just not true. Like a lot of them, they're just beings without bodies. Yeah. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. Some of them are just jerks. In that realm that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. They're just people without bodies. This kind of brings me to this point too, because we're getting into like, okay, everything is fey or maybe not fey is the term that you would use, but everything is just sort of non-human entity as I guess is what Mm -hmm. we could call them. Like generally some people would put ghosts in that category and they would put aliens in that category and, 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 right. So I guess what I'm curious about is from your experiences with plant medicine and meditation and everything, do you feel like you can actually have a physical encounter with one of these kinds of beings or that it all has to happen in the psychic realm of communication? Oh, for sure. One of the first things that was really shocking to me was purging an energy that I could actually feel leaving my mouth. Like I could feel it moving along my lips as the energy was leaving my mouth. It was fucking crazy. And I asked about that with the shaman. Like, what the hell? How am I feeling physically these emotions? They said, sometimes they're really dense. Just like simply put, sometimes they're really dense. That's kind of the way I understand it is that like a light bulb, for example, when a light bulb is on in the room, you don't feel it on you. But instead of a light bulb, which is 60 watts, you were to have a laser that's only five watts and it shined on you, it would burn you easily. Well, what's the difference? 
The only difference is that that power is concentrated into a small point and then it manifests physically or it's technically manifesting physically anyway, but the intensity gets high enough that it goes into your sensitive threshold. When you're resonant with these beings, then the sensitivity increases and the intensity of the connection makes it so that you can physically manipulate or physically interact with them. I don't actually do that a lot in my normal life, but when we do breath work, I do. I talk about this a bit and and it always kind of changes, but something that I do for whatever reason, I perceive people's pain as being like splinters in their body. And so when we're going through these ceremonies, I'll pull these splinters out. Why does it look that way? I have no idea, but it definitely seems to help. Uh, and at first I thought like, I'm losing my mind, <laughs> but, but I would do it. And, and I would, I could even do it from like across the room and I could pull one of these splinters out and I'd see someone just start twitching crazy and then they'd relax. And then, you know, it's something else. The likelihood of, of having a physical interaction with these beings is it just gets higher and higher, the more sensitive you are to it with the intensity of the intention. That's a big part of it. Because it takes a lot of power on their side to be able to do that with you. Right. Especially like what happens for a lot of people is they get like a high pitch ringing in the ear. It takes a lot of intention and power on their side to communicate with you to get your attention like that. You're in a room, all the windows are closed and it feels like wind. Like, wait a minute, how could there possibly wind in here? No, it's not wind. That's as much as they can muster to get your attention. Mm-hmm. And when you feel that, stop whatever you're doing, what's going on, you know, check in because it takes a lot for them to get your attention. And once they get your attention, you can tune in and get whatever the message is. Back to what you were saying about the the intensity of the light. Mm-hmm. I read an article years and years ago about this woman who went to Peru or wherever in South America to do ayahuasca for the first time, just like, a, you know, a reporter. She was like, I'm Uh going to go experience this. You know, she didn't have any experience. She didn't know what the fuck it was. She went and she did it. And in the bucket, because they had buckets to barf in. Right. When, you know, later on when they, when they got, came to, I mean, the shaman and the helpers like knew and everything, they saw it as well. There was a black snake like thing that was absolutely physical that came out of her Mm. body and it freaked her out. And it was in, I mean, it was like a national geographic or some, something kind of like that. It wasn't that, but it was, and, and she told this story and she was like, it freaked me the shit out because yeah. I barfed that up. That was like an, an organism, you know, uh-huh. I had forgotten about that until you just, just said that. So, oh, yeah. the stuff that comes out of people is unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> a lot of times though, well, I mean, a lot of times you don't even want to look at it. Because just the experience of getting out is so intense. Typically, so there's different kinds of traditions. So the traditional ayahuasquero Peruvian long, like thousands of year history of ayahuasca, they would do it at night. And then you have the Church of Santa Daime, which is a Brazilian church led by this guy who he kind of took the traditional ayahuasca and then kind of combined it with Catholicism in this way with Af- he was he himself was African. And so he also combined it with animism, like where people would take on animal spirits in their bodies and they do it during the day. And so it's just a totally different experience. I've done both and I much prefer the nighttime because I actually don't think that there's a lot of value in seeing what comes out of you in the sense that it's like, if you get a tumor removed from your body, just be happy it's gone and get on with your life. Don't sit there and like ruminate on this 
toxicity, get it out, flush the toilet, go do something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. But sometimes the experience of it leaving the body is so intense that it's unavoidable. I've had experiences, actually not with ayahuasca, but I was doing a Vipassana retreat. And I think it was like the seventh day of isolation and you're meditating, you know, nine, 10 hours a day. It felt like the skin on my back split from my neck to my tailbone and my skin was peeled off from the back. It didn't hurt, but it was like, oh, just even thinking about it, you know, like the whole caterpillar metamorphosis kind of, it was so bizarre. And that was another thing that was so meaningful to me because I was sober. I mean, I've had experiences where like the energy is so intense that it, when it's leaving, that you lose control of your body. And that can be kind of scary. I mean, luckily I was with people that really knew what they're doing. And so they helped me through it. So I've had this chronic pain in my neck for years and years and years. And there's a whole story. It's really long. I won't get into it now. It's in the book. After doing this crazy seance with my partner and my mentor, we went into this past life. It was so nuts. I started crying and I'm not really someone who cries. Like it was it was absolutely bonkers. I realized this trauma of being a victim of brutality during the crusades. And there's all these circumstantial stories. Like Tons of information in the book. But later, I saw that this wound that was created from my death that kind of like had a residue on my soul when I reincarnated, this wound was actually being like fed on by a little creature. It looked like, uh, I'm kind of seeing his face in my mind. It looked kind of like a little gargoyle at first, like red and black with a little tail with a point on it. And it was like feeding on, on this wound. Like, you know, when you have a cut and flies go to it, you mm-hmm. know, and it was like feeding on me. And I was like, what the fuck? And I saw him and I was like, oh my God. Like, and I, and I was like panicking a little bit. And I kept telling him like, you have to get off me. You have to get off me. And I was so resistant to it. But as time went on, I was like, you know what? It's okay if you're there. I'm strong enough. I can handle it. It's fine. If you need this, it's fine. And when I did that, it was like a, a really awesome CGI, like from X-Men or something, <laughs> where from tip to tail, it transformed into like this white and blue furry kind of like monkey-ish looking thing. And, and it was just like, instead of being this mean, evil parasite, it was like this ally that was bringing attention to this wound. And that was this massive revelation because instead of seeing this thing as being my enemy... I realized it wasn't feeding off of me because I'm a victim. It was showing me that there's this wound here that needs attention. And it's been helping me. It's been doing me this favor for so long that I was fighting. I was fighting the realization of like forgiving the perpetrator of of this like horrific death that I had experienced. And then, you know, it transformed into this like cool (laughs) little pet. And I was like, oh, I even named him because I kept saying like the being on my shoulder. I was like, oh, it's too too wordy so i started calling him javier for some reason i don't know yeah i was like javier's here yeah he's just hanging out you know and then sometimes i can still feel him like floating around like not necessarily sitting there but i can feel him like floating around just like a like an ally a non-physical ally that just hangs out do you still feel the pain in your neck sometimes it was indicative yeah it was and and one of the things that i noticed with people and their wounds is that like if you imagine uh like a leak in a roof when there's a puncture like if there's a hole in your roof you call that a wound but because there's that weakness then the substrate wood gets damaged and then the floor gets damaged below it and then you know and so a lot of times what happens for people is that when there's a wound somewhere there's a lot of wounds that kind of pile on top of it you kind of have to unwind those 
if you're super, super lucky, and this is very rare, you can correct something very at the bottom and then everything else will correct above it. But that's that's very, very rare. Typically what happens is that you you kind of have to work back and heal everything going back. So I feel like there's still a little something there, but for the most part, I mean, I even going back, there is stuff with my dad, just general personal physical maintenance things. I'd sleep on my stomach, which was making it worse. Things like that. So you are a shamanic practitioner. Is that what you're doing most of the time now is you're helping people to remove the splinters, so to speak, and mm-hmm. other people's and, and your own, I'm sure continually, yeah. you're always working on yourself as well. Is that what your mission now is in this lifetime? Would you call it that? I would. I, I think that's that's accurate. I just don't make any money doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know almost anybody that actually, you know, they make a living doing this kind of work. Ideally, we did, but all my guys, they're either older and retired. You know, one is a record producer. The other one, he does massage. The other one, he used to have a company. Now he's retired. And then one of them just like lives in a cave by himself. And I kind of lost track of him. That's one of the things that you can tell. It's like when someone is driving a Mercedes and they're a shaman, not that it's not possible, but it's a bit of a red flag for me because it's not about money. It never has been. And when you see a certain materialism crop up, again, not that it couldn't happen, but when I try to think about these breathwork events in terms of how many participants and how much money did we make, it's never, ever, ever as fulfilling and meaningful and joyful for me than when I just say, we're doing it here. Whoever comes, comes. I'm going to give 110% and I love everybody, whatever. Like It's just the attitude of not about performance or economics or anything like that. I think it's important to be really clear of those motivations, you know, in order to be really effective. You know, I do other things to make money now. The most meaningful work I do, like you said, is is to work on my own healing and to offer that healing to other people. <laughs> I couldn't support myself materially on that. Yeah. And I don't know if I'd want to because it's a lot. It, you know, we we tried to do breathwork events every two weeks, but the energy that moves through us is so intense that it felt like life was a little lopsided, you know, and it kind of goes back to that whole like tree analogy. So we thought once a month is perfect because then we can let all this energy move through and then direct our lives through playing with the dog, take him to the beach, planting things, growing fruit, you know, to have more balance in the life. I think being just so focused and spending too much time doing shaman work specifically is not healthy because the idea of what shamanism is, I think, is a little bit off. It's about communing with nature and acting when you're called. Doing healing work is more about vigilance than it is performance. And that's actually something that I had a really hard time with. I was like, if I'm not actively pulling and pushing on people, then I'm not doing my job. And it's like, no, that's that's a very Western concept. The best thing that I can do a lot of times is to be so centered and present of myself that my field heals people and I'm not actually physically doing anything. And so I don't need a wand. I don't need a rattle. I don't need whatever just to emanate that very calming, peaceful field. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's a really good chapter in one of Eckhart Tolle's books about that. Just him standing in the presence of somebody having like a meltdown and him just being there in the present moment fully. 
was enough to have them get where they needed to go. That's something that sticks with me. Yeah. Sometimes that is the best thing that you can do. Sometimes the best thing is to just to to shut up and, Mm -hmm. and hold the space, so to speak. It's perceiving yourself as a, as a conduit instead of feeling like you're in control and having to do something. Yeah. So you do the breath work classes or workshops once a month. Mm -hmm. Is this just in person or can people join online? How does it work? We've done a few remote sessions and online. It seems to be fairly effective. The only reason why we're not doing it now is because when we are guiding the session, we're kind of like a foot in both worlds. And I look at the computer like I've never seen one before. It's very difficult to be present in the room with the people there, as well as to like make sure the sound levels are right and the music is, you know. So what we're looking for now is someone that's on the level with us and and really like motivated to and like understand what we're doing, what we're about, that can handle the technology while we're doing our work. Because trying to do both at the same time is is too much. But we have done remote sessions with a lot of success. But it, it would have to be just remote or just in person. The last time we tried to do both at the same time, and it was like, ugh. <laughs> Confusing. Yeah, it was overwhelming. Yeah. I just remembered that you said when we first talked that like the last podcast you had done, you talked the whole time and didn't talk about the book. And I feel like here we are again, (laughs) but we're going to talk about it. I wanted to talk first about what you're offering, which is the breath work course. And I want to take it as soon as it's available remotely. I'm super curious. I, I would love to try it. So keep me in the loop. I'll sign up for a newsletter. Do you have a newsletter? Yeah, we do. And that's just through the website, warriorbreath.life. So the breath work is there. And then you also have the book, which is Waking the Shaman. And mm-hmm. this came out last spring. To summarize the book, I'd say it's it's the book that I wish I had 10 years ago, because there's just not a lot of support and infrastructure for people who are going through this process of expanding their minds and healing themselves. You know, I I try to make myself in a sense relatable because I'm not special in that sense. I don't think that anything that I did is not accessible to everybody. And the experiences that I had, if I knew how valid and legitimate they were, it would have made everything easier. And so that's another big part of it. It's like everything that I went through is accessible to everybody. It's just a matter of trying it. You know, it's a matter of putting yourself out there and committing to the process. And when your mind starts to open, th- there's just a lot of material there to be to be dealt with. You know, don't try to play it off as if it's not important. You know, so I put a lot of anecdotes in there to make it like, yeah, I'm just another person that happened to go through this. And, you know, if you have a similar experience, like that's awesome. I went through a bunch of things like saltwater purging as a way of like clearing the digestive tract. It's really common in India because there are a lot more parasites there than than here, you know? And so certain things that I've done that were really intense, I kind of catalog them, you know, as, as these very shamanic practices or healing practices that it was good or not good or how I would do it differently or just trying to give a little bit more groundwork because the first time I did the saltwater cleansing, I fasted for three days and I drank like a gallon of saltwater, which was not in the right proportion. And I was by myself and I thought I was going to die. It was awful. (laughs) 
I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Someone's going to find me like a week later because I live by myself, <laughs> like just with my pants down, like covered in my own shit. Like, it, <laughs> oh, like no. what the hell have I done to myself? And, and I was just going through that cycle for hours, you know, and it was, it was brutal. And so there's no reason for anyone else to have to go through that. You know, you don't get a gold star for suffering. Some things are uncomfortable, but there's no reason to suffer like unnecessarily. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to get through with this book. It's like, there's ways to do things that are effective. And then there's other ways that are less effective that have these other qualities of suffering in them. And and I would rather, if it were up to me, that people just take these effective routes, knowing why they're doing it and, and what the potential is there for them. You know, because certain things like, like, for example, as a psychedelic, like salvia, I don't think that almost anybody should take it. I think that it's it's way too harsh of a plant. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody, almost anybody. Wow. I'm hoping that the book is entertaining for people and relatable. A good friend of mine, he's he's like in his 70s. He's like, this reminded me of myself, but 30 years ago. So you tell the stories and you also, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Try not to do this thing that I fucked up doing. Exactly. And yeah. Which is really um, helpful, especially in the land of like trying to, you know, purge demons, like mm-hmm. deal with your past, face your past, let go of trauma. It can get really hairy, as you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So that's super helpful. So if anybody can invo- avoid the pitfalls that I fell into, like it will all be worth it. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. And I hope to chat with you again, honestly. Sure. No, I'd love to chat more another time. All right. See you later, Michael. Take care. All right. Yeah, you too. Dang. Michael's stories, especially the one about taking ayahuasca and asking for all of his chakras to be aligned, really make me not want to pursue ayahuasca at all, ever, really. And that's really what he was saying, right? At the end was that we should learn from his mistakes and try the easier, more chill approach to cultivating our woo natures. Also, I have to say that I and Follow the Woo cannot and do not condone drug usage of any kind. I wanted to tell y'all that that blue orb that Michael mentioned is a pretty popular face sighting. And I forgot what they were even called during the interview, but I texted our good old pal, Stephanie Bingham, historian and paranormal researcher, and she reminded me that they are called Fifile or Feofile. I know it sounds like fish filet for some reason. Like in my mind, I'm going to forever call them fish filet. These filets are pretty legendary spirits and they show up in a lot of French and Louisiana folklore, which is similar to the will of the wisp. And you might've heard of that one before. And that's a phenomenon known more in English folklore and belief. And actually a lot of European folklore by a variety of names, including probably the one you've heard of the most, which is a jack-o'-lantern. There's also a friar's lantern, a hinky punk, and a hobby lantern. Anyway, it is said that they tend to mislead travelers. And in the South and around the areas that I now live in, it is very common knowledge that if you see one, do not follow them because spooky and not fun things are thought to be associated with them. 
I've experienced these blue orbs myself when I was investigating a top secret fey hotspot in Pennsylvania. And they are extremely unique in the way they move and present. And I didn't know this until after I had the experience, but they are said to put their onlookers into a full trance or like a lull almost, which is exactly what I experienced during that particular investigation. So if you see the blue light, don't follow it. Anywho, moving on, you can purchase Waking the Shaman on Amazon, and you can check out everything woo that Michael and his partner are up to at warriorbreath.life. As always, those links will be in the show notes. It is the second day of Mercury in retrograde, so hold on to your butts. It will be in retrograde until Friday, June 3rd at 1 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Also, we have a full moon coming up on May 15th or 16th, depending on where you live. And it's a super moon that coincides with a total lunar eclipse for most of North America. In astrology, lunar eclipses are usually associated with rapid growth and transformation and sometimes surprising revelations. It peaks in the sign of Scorpio, which is a sign that's about transformation and facing truths that we've been avoiding so our truer selves can come to light. I'm here for all that, although per usual, when it comes to lunar stuff, it's usually pretty uncomfortable. Be prepared for it. If you're trying to do energy work or a ritual, a really great weekend for it. Also, I'm going to have Michael on again. We're working on putting together a remote Zoom breathwork event. I'll keep you updated. All right. Until next time, y'all, which I promise will not be another six weeks. Love you. Mean it. Bye. Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the Order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a Woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 